And we all marched into the faculty meeting and marched down the aisles and onto the stage. And they had a bunch of, uh, you know, two by eight tables set up in front of, with microphones and uh, the elite of the college faculty there. And they said, well, what's the meaning of this? This is we're the non-organization. And here's your damn money. Now go fix the building and let's get back to school. That was Last Gas publishing owner Ron Turner. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Just a quick note. This project means the world to us, and it's really important that we keep it free to consume. To that end, you can pledge support for Storied SF on three different levels, gold, silver, or bronze. Please go to our website, storiedsf.com, for more details and to show your support for what we do. Every week on this podcast, you'll hear from small business owners, artists, and San Franciscans from all walks of life, telling stories, sharing personal histories, and trying to put into words what makes this city so special. Welcome to episode 28, part one. In this podcast, Ron talks about growing up in the Central Valley, giving us some clues to how his childhood informed his life in the Bay Area over the last five decades. Here's Ron. I moved here in 19, fall of 1967, and I moved here because I was at, San, at Fresno State, and I was in grad school there, and I got in my head in over the, over the water line, or under the water line, in political activity, and it was just getting to be too, I really wanted to be I was already almost the first person in our families to ever get a college degree. And I wanted to get at least a master's degree. I'd had some pretty good life experience already. I'd I'd been one of the first Peace Corps volunteers back in 62 to 64. Uh, Came back to Fresno State after that and had to retake all my core courses and go from being a C student to an A student. And things were going okay, but then I just got too involved with so many different aspects. We had was part of a group putting out an underground newspaper. Um, I exposed corruption at the Peace Corps training site that I was hired by Washington to work at, and was part of anti-war group. It was. You know, when you did th- th- simple things like just stood in a peace vigil, you got spit on. You know, it was like it was a, it was a rough time for presenting ideas outside the norm. And the norm in the San Joaquin Valley was pretty conservative, so it was time for me to get out. And I'd done an expose of the district attorney in Fresno, uh, flagrante delicto, caught in the act. And uh, the first, I mean, it was just really a cheap, you know, we mimeographed it and stapled it, you know, and and probably had three places we sold it. You know, it was like, it was a very um, narrow band that the radicals operated on in those days. There weren't too many of us. What about your, your life before that, growing up, as you said, in the very conservative San Joaquin Valley? How do you think you got steered in a different direction. What kind of kid were you? I was a big, fat kid. And now I'm a big, fat adult. 
I don't know what kind of kid I was. I, th I thought I was okay. I thought I was, uh, I remember when I was in the sixth grade, I was immensely happy when two of my little girlfriends both gave me a kiss on each cheek at the county fair. And I wouldn't wash my face for three days just to prove that I was light. Because I also remembered running home from school after kids taunted me that I was ugly and crying in my pillow. You know, but I, as I grew up, I got to be bigger and bigger, and I stopped growing when I was 14. So that also meant earlier puberty. And uh, my folks were very loving and very kind, and th one great thing was is they never uttered a, uh, that I can remember any racist comment ever in our house, unlike every other house that we were, we were lived around. And they didn't seem to be bothered by anybody else's ethnicity at all. So uh, I think that had a good effect on me. Like maybe you you kind of innately or organically felt a little a little out of place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I think also we had uh, my dad had a variety of things different things that he did and one thing was that we had motion picture theaters and this was before television and we'd be in small towns and for a year or two and then go bankrupt and have to move on to another small town and find another theater and so it was I was always we were always moving around and setting up base or whatever for a couple of years and one town especially fireball was very important to me and we pronounce it like it's B-A-L-L, -L, but it's really B-A-U-G-H. Some guy had made a toll road and a bridge out uh, on the west side of the San Joaquin Valley in Fresno County. And it just sort of like, you know, as, as, you know the occasional turnip falls off the, the fruit wagon. You know, different things tend to end up growing there. And some of my best friends... I've known forever, uh, my friend Gene Salazar, he's still my buddy. He's a retired dean at UC San Francisco. And uh, so, he was, you know, many other people escape these things. His niece uh, is uh, Tracy Desjardins, who just had her Jardinier restaurant is just closing after 20 years. She's very successful. Tracy's mom uh, was Gene's sister. And I used to go to the Salazars. They'd always feed me because my folks were always at the theater working or whatever, and I was a mooch as a kid. And Gene and I were the only kids in Fireball that knew how to use tennis rackets. Maybe let's talk about your – so you, you're at Fresno State, 67, and you're just – you're over the place. Uh, well, yeah, I'd already uh, – a friend of mine, Mike Sullivan, had gone up to San Francisco State. He'd gotten into this – into this Lama program, Liberal of Arts, Master of Arts, in the psych department. And it was a very, very cool program. It was like the psych department was like 5,000 students, 55 professors or so. And they had this one special program that led to a master's and then went on to almost everybody that went through there got a PhD. And they only took 12 students every year. 1,200 applied, they took 12. And once you got there, you got to write up your own course structure 
and you never had more than six or seven people in your pro, in your seminars, and you had a thesis advisor, and you were off and running. And I didn't think I was ready for that, but I had gotten lucky and gotten the head of the history department, where I'd never taken a history course at Fresno State, but this guy liked me, and he wrote me a glowing letter. And the head of the psych department wrote me a letter, and uh, several other people did, and uh, some. And I guess I passed muster. So uh, I wanted to come up and check, so I came up with Mike to see what it was like up here, and we said, oh, let's go over and meet, uh, there's this guy over in uh, Berkeley that's got a, a newspaper called the Berkeley Barb. It's going to be coming out. I said, okay, so we went over to visit him. But he had a nightclub down on Shattuck. And as we went to the nightclub, we got in the middle of a, of a shootout between a couple of guys on the street. So we were like hiding behind cars that were getting bullets shot in them. And then we went in to have a drink afterwards. <laughs> as you do. So I thought, this is well, this is a good introduction to the Bay Area. I'd, already, I'd worked on the railroad for five years also as a brakeman and sometimes worked out of Richmond and Oakland. So I, I knew a little bit of, of the area and some history, but that was like a good introduction to things. And for our underground paper in Fresno, I'd interviewed the Grateful Dead and ended up giving them rides to the airport because there was really no way to get to the airport in Fresno and, you know, after about 10 at night. And uh, ended up being friends with them. So when I came up here, at least I had some people I knew, but I didn't have ability once I got up to San Francisco to enjoy all that because I was still working on the railroad down in Fresno. And they, it was a long growing season and they wouldn't lay us off. So I had to commute between San Francisco and Fresno for almost a couple of months after I first got up here. It's really crazy. So you you were you got into SF State and you were hanging out with, among other people, the Grateful Dead. Was that when they were over on Haight Street or in that area? Were they already over there? Seven Ten Ashbury. Ashbury, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Do you remember any of that? Oh no! Well, they're all they were busy, you know, and they had so many people hanging on and being hippies, you know. I always like to think of myself as a a working hippie, you know. I always had a job. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, again, as I said, again, it was like a, it was like trying to go into somebody's business and try to have a conversation with somebody in the middle of a big. Everything was in a way it was like sales all the time. They were like either selling themselves or the songs or the lifestyle, and there was endless reporters and people running around, and then there were the fans, lots of fans. My uh, friend um, that I came up with. Charles Amerconian, He, we both came up from Fresno State, and we'd been part of an experimental college at Fresno State. And he went in the music department, and I went in the psych department, and we had our first parties. And he'd moved in next door to the Grateful Dead. That was where his house was. And we had, threw our first parties and, you know, and invited our new, all our new friends to our, each of our parties, and uh, by the middle of the party, either he called me or I called him, and I was living out in Richmond District then, and I said, so how's it going, Charles? He says, well, he says, it's really odd. He says, all these people said they were coming, 
but hardly any of them came. I said, well, the same thing happened to my party. Why don't we join party? So we went over to his party, and then we had enough people to make it a party. But we, something we learned in Fresno, if you said you were going to come to a party, you came. That was like, you know, pinky swear, you know, completely you're going to be there. And in San Francisco, everybody says, yeah, I'm coming. I'll see you right on, man, you know, and uh, you never see him again in your life. So uh, that was kind of like one of those kind of cultural change differences that you notice. But Charles ended up right next to the Grateful Dead, and he went on in his music career to become the music director at KPFA for 30 years. And he's still kicking with some music, various music uh, organizations now. So that was all in your first, maybe first year or so being here? Oh, first three or four months, yeah. Yeah, so you lived out in the Richmond district. Yeah. Where where were you? Do you remember? That would be on 6th Avenue off of uh, Balboa. Yeah, okay. Not a bad, not a bad area. No, it's pretty Russian. You know, all the Russians were always like, you walk, a lot of white Russian community out there and I, Walking down the street, and there'd be a couple old Russians. They'd be kind of looking at you, grumbling, Rasputin, Rasputin, because I had my long hair and long beard, and it was dark then. Yeah. So uh, I don't know about that. So. Okay. So and so this all was '67. Um, do you want to talk about any anything else about just starting to live here before we get to Last Gasp? Because you said Last Gasp was summer of, or. Early 70, right? Yeah. Okay. Was there anything else in those three years you want to? Well, there was a group uh, I joined in San Francisco State called the Committee of Return Volunteers. This was nationally about 3,000 souls who had spent at least two years either in the Peace Corps or American Friends Service Committee. But it was mostly former Peace Corps volunteers. And as the anti-war movement picked up, we felt that we were kind of the State Department of the of the movement because we had people from almost any country in the world who knew deeply and intimately about the political realities of that country, and which were not much known in the United States. So we, we kind of did a lot of actions and activities with that group. So there was that. I don't know. I just kept getting a lot of great jobs, and uh, we also had the strike at San Francisco State, which was the longest strike in U.S. history for students. And that had a lot of my, my roommates at that time was a guy named Roger Alvarado, who was head of the Third World Liberation Front. So he looked a lot like Che Guevara, only he was taller, and had a hard time fitting in my Volkswagen. So we drive to school every day for to greet our 2,000 police uh, minders on campus as we attempted to strike. It was a pretty brutal, bloody time, and a lot of people got arrested and busted. And so there were many, many stories in, the, in that era. Were you part of the organizing for the student strike? Or? I was peripheral for the. I was peripheral for that. Uh, but I was not a, a leader, although I did. The first time I got my picture on the front page of the paper was uh, at, we had a black students' union that on campus and great bunch of guys. And there was a 
we had, we're trying to establish a, a black studies program, a degree program, and also other ethnic studies programs. And there was kind of a, a, a plywood warren of offices on campus. The year before I got to state, the students had taken over the cafeteria and the bookstores, financial things, and instead of having the money go to some corporation, it went into the student funds. And with the student funds, they then embarked on setting up a community psychology program, which sent people out to the various ghettos around San Francisco, in which you didn't have to go very far, believe me, in those days, to find impoverished areas of, of ethnic people. And they brought people to campus that had never been to campus before, they had teaching assignments. They were, you know, kind of creating things out of thin air, but that was, you know, actually solid when they got done with it. And so this this worked as very nice. And around that same time, from from that grew a idea of doing ethnic studies programs. And Governor Reagan, I believe, was governor back then. And things got really hot and heavy, and there were like all kinds of machinations, and they de they denied certain things, and the bookstore got raided, and damaged, plate glass windows broken. So the state was in a fury, because the state, to skimp uh, on needed insurance, they decided not to pay it, because it would have to be a catastrophic event to justify the premiums for insurance. So they had no insurance premiums for for, for lots of damage. Uh, that That's fine until some damage comes along. But they felt that they could pay that off easily enough from all the savings that they'd made by not paying these premiums. So when the bookstore's windows got broken and things, there was... They yelled, big damage, and who's going to pay for this? And you'd think that they would just say, okay, we're going to redo this and you know, have a, have a sit-down talk with all the students and get this straightened out. And the students are really angry then. And so we uh, had a group I had coffee with in the morning at, at uh, San Francisco State in the cafeteria, and we called ourselves the non-organization. And we thought that it would be a great idea if we just raised money amongst the students and paid for the dam rebuilding ourselves and go on with our lives. You know, this was just a distraction to our studies. So we did this, and this guy, George Mason, was going to be a, um, I think his dad had a bookstore down in Pacifica. He was a big, tall guy, good voice, nice baritone. And he got bronchitis, and I was told five minutes before, you know, like 50, half hour before, he couldn't do it. You're going to have to do it, Ron. So, jeez, oh, I had no idea what I was going to say, no idea what I was going to do. And the only thing I could think of was like, okay, we got to collect money, so we're going to need a container. So I sent some friends off to the cafeteria where they had these empty three-pound cans of Folger coffee, which made the horrible stuff we drank every day there. And I had them like lined up around. I said, you just go around and get in the lines and pass these cans back and forth. 
when we collect the dough. Hoping there'd be enough people that would show up at this rally and also there'd be some money coming in the cans. What else to do? So anyway, I got up and the only thing I could think of was the time that I sat at an A.A. Allen revival in Fresno with a bunch of my buddies with all these crutches that we'd gotten from the disabled American veterans store and walked down on our crutches and, cl and agreed that we'd been saved and threw our crutches away and ran out. But I kind of remembered the, this, the, the patois that this uh, Oki preacher had done. And uh, so I kind of made the, the talk into a, like a revival talk. So off we went and <laughs> I gave the talk, we passed the cans of money and it was like people weren't doing everything as a benefit back then. So the cans actually got full of money. And the uh, it was very successful. And the faculty was having a meeting. And we all marched into the faculty meeting and marched down the aisles and onto the stage. And they had a bunch of, uh, you know, two-by-eight tables set up in front of, with microphones and uh, the elite of the college faculty there and, they said, well, what's the meaning of this? This is we're the non-organization, and here's your damn money. Now go fix the building, and let's get back to school. You know, and then we marched out, and um, they were stunned. They didn't know what to do. So radical. Yeah, so so simple. Another word for radical is simple. You know, it really is. And so that night, so my roommates out in Richmond came to came back and get me and said, hey, you got some people out here who want to talk to you in the front of the building. And I said, oh, geez, what's this? And I came out and there's all the the, the, heavy, the radical heavy people from school. He says, okay, so so what are we doing tomorrow? I says, I don't know what we're doing tomorrow. I'm going to school. What are you doing? You know, and um, then and they said, no, no, you've got, you've got to. Then I realized that this had been like a big step for them. I, I saw this as a, kind of a burden of an obligation, but <laughs> somehow it worked in their minds. And so uh, within six months, I think I was living with a lot of these people and we were taking in troubled children from the mission and uh, basically spending our lives doing radical stuff. But during that whole time, I was still holding down jobs. And some of the jobs were fantastic in this town. Uh, I think you've read some of Gary Camilla's columns about uh, the whole area of San Francisco and its history in the paper every week. Gary Camilla's father was a brilliant uh, experimenter, and he one job I had was to go with him and he at UC San Francisco, and he had a lab set up, and he had like about twenty Buddhist monks come in, and he would like attach leads to their heads. And the, the computers covered like about 400, 500 square feet of these giant monster computers back then, stuff you'd find in a wristwatch today. But, but back then they were you know, huge. And he did studies in alpha, in the brain waves. And alpha, you know, was one of the uh, waves that your brain produces about four major waves. And... So I'd do the attachments, and then he'd ask people to get into a meditative state. 
and then they'd all they were all like having all kinds of wavelengths come out and then they all go into a synchronized alpha it was amazing so he was like really cool guy but uh, I don't think I'm not sure Gary was even born then. But anyway, so it's what was your job in that lab? I was I attached the leads to the heads of the Buddhist monks. That's yeah, like you which said. was easy because they were heads were shaved. <laughs> but that is a cool job, right? That was a cool As job, a, you yeah. were, uh, are, we, were are, over, we were at Pacific Medical Center. I had another job where we were trying to help blind people see. And the smallest computer that we could get together was about a 40-pound, 40, 40 to 44-pound backpack thing. And uh, they had to somehow carry it. And it would uh, make stippled effects on your back from a camera. So maybe if you came up, it would – but it wasn't a color camera. That would have been too heavy. So it it was just – you know, it was the wrong way to go at that time for, for visual things. But they were like, we would have to draw things on people's foreheads, uh, lowercase b, p, q, and d, and see if they could determine which way that letter was. And it's odd. You try that with people. And everybody comes up with a different way of seeing it. They either invert it or uh, read it backwards or forwards or don't or read it from how they think you want it to be read. So it was very hard to have something that would spell things out, have something that would spell things out to them in a uh, in a stylus thing on their back. It was kind of crazy. So it didn't work. But it was, you know, trying to do borderline stuff was very interesting. And then I got a job studying allergies and emotions at Kaiser Hospital. Hmm. All sort of hospitally medical. Well, those were the places that had the jobs. For if you were being hired, uh, they they wrote grants and they had money coming in to pay for those things, and uh, and that's what happened was that my Kaiser job came to the end when Nixon cut off all the science funds uh, to help pay for the war. That was Ron Turner. Join us Thursday when Ron will talk about launching Last Gasp Publishing in 1970 with a series of underground comics. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to learn about some of the stuff we do besides the podcast. All 70-plus episodes live on our website, storiedsf.com, which is also where you can now go to pledge your support for the show. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show for us. Send comments or suggestions to storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.